sharing the next oh, 90 minutes or so with His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency and Father, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Nice to be here, Justin. This episode, as is the case for all of our non-sponsored episodes, is free for the first 15 minutes to non-members. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit restorationradionetwork.com go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. If you're not a member and would like to purchase an individual episode, you can also go to restorationradionetwork.com, navigate the available episode of your choice, and simply click the links below the player on the page. After completing your purchase, you will be emailed a secure download link. Well, on this episode, Your Excellency and Father, we're starting off Season 4. It's been about 60 days or so since we did our last show, and uh, looking over the show topics and, and all the news that has come out since November, it's 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 sort of a more of the same look at this. The only thing that I really would say about this is, having looked over all these topics, we're, we're starting to see, even more so now, the general picture sort of coalesce together of what, what Bergoglio is, what his plans for this revolution are, which is... The title of this program is Radical and Irreversible Transformation. So, Your Excellency, would you like to comment on that? Yes, it's uh, it's like a movie that is unfolding. Uh, we, as we eat the popcorn, we watch this uh, scene go on, the, this succession of scenes. We see the plot thicken. It gets worse and worse as we go along. And, um, and that's very important to understand. Obviously, we are not preaching to our own choir, nor are we preaching necessarily to atheists and the godless who really need more than what we're talking about here. They need a, a lesson in apologetics of the Catholic Church, by the way, which was condemned by Bergoglio. Uh, we're talking to those people who are still unconvinced that this man is not a Catholic. Uh, our position is this man is not a Catholic. He intends the overthrow of the Catholic Church we are proving that he intends the overthrow of the Catholic Church. This is why we point out time and time again uh, what he is doing, what he is saying, until these people finally see it. When are they going to see it? Uh, we see uh, already a certain crumbling of their position, uh, a shaking in their attitudes toward uh, Novus Ordo Popes, but nothing that uh, indicates yet that they are convinced that these people are actually aliens to the Catholic Church who have invaded it and who are trying to transform it from within in order to com make it something completely different from what it was up to 1958. So that that's our purpose here. I would build on what Bishop Sanborn just said. 
he speaks of it as a movie that's uh, unfolding in front of us. I might also compare it to uh, some sort of a piece of music, not a very pleasant piece of music, that's, that's unfolding. And you, you, hear, you hear these different themes constantly start to emerge. Because Bishop Sanborn and I have been through this uh, before in the 60s and 70s, we started to notice these particular themes. Our, our, our ears were sort of perked up, as it were, when Bergoglio first started to sound them. And over the course of his, his misrule, as it were, these, are, these occur more and more and more. His distaste for dogma, for instance, his theology of uh, surprises, the idea of mercy, by which he understands a forgiveness without repentance, his theme of, of uh, in effect, undermining the Church's teaching on uh, the indissolubility of marriage and the evil of, of contraception. So all of these these uh, little themes keep on occurring in, uh, I don't know, I guess you, you might want to call it the symphony that he's directing. Uh, maybe sometimes it's more like the tango that he's directing. <laughs> Uh, more on that later. Uh, more on that later. But it's it's um, becoming more and more evident what uh, exactly he is up to as uh, the uh, tango unfolds. Mm-hmm. I think as we go along in this show, our listeners are going to hear, as we said, a lot of the same, but yet a little bit more defined. The picture is becoming clear, or the music is becoming louder, and and we're going to cover topics such as. We've talked on other shows, the contempt for the notion of dogma and doctrine, sprinkled in with some universal salvation, the undermining of Catholic moral principles, and of course, you know, Bergoglio talking about these departures from the church doctrine and dogmas, and these are sort of recurring themes, but they're, they're really starting to shape the picture. Let's start, Father, with, we were talking about this before the show, and I wanted to give this to you to start off with, these stories about, uh, which came from your favorite cardinal, Maradiaga, uh, who talked about the... <laughs> Top banana. The Celi, uh This came out uh, January the 23rd of this year, where he was talking about, he being Maradiaga, was, was speaking about church renovation to an irreversible point, and that of radical and irreversible changes. Do you want to speak about that, Father? Yes, uh, this theme as it were, was sounded about a year ago, I think by Maradiaga and by a few others who were uh, close to Bergoglio. Their position was that Bergoglio felt that Vatican II had not been uh, taken to where it really should have been taken, and that since Vatican II, all we've had in applying it are half measures, but that he was going to go full steam ahead and ensure that whatever was done in the way of of church renovation or changes could not be put back. So uh, we've heard this theme before, and and the interesting thing about Maradiaga, of course, is he is the, uh, in fact, the, as we say, the top banana of the uh, council of of, uh, cardinals who advise Bergoglio. And he's sent around the world, I think, to, in effect, uh, put out the message to those people who want to receive it about the course that the revolution's going to take, and to warn those who are against it that this is now what they can expect. So 
couple of lines in here. This was actually from a speech that he gave somewhere in the Silicon Valley, Santa Clara. He said, specifically, there's no true ecclesial renovation without a transformation of the institutions, of the quality and focus of the activities. Usually, renovation begins with pastoral activities. So remember how that came up with uh, the indissolubility of marriage and and, uh, contraception. For it is there where the inconsistencies of a certain model of the church and reality are primarily experienced. The pastoral criticism begins with the experience of the mission in the peripheries. Changes and adjustments begin there. Everything in the church changes consistent with a renewed pastoral model. And then he says the Pope wants to take church renovation to the point where it becomes irreversible. So that's, it really couldn't be clear what the, what the program and the way of implementing his uh, revolution uh, is, that he is, he is uh, uh, chipping away uh, through praxis at uh, uh, teachings, at dogmas, and moral principles that the church has always taught and believed and is trying to change the institutions with them along the way. So it's a very, I think it's a very, very significant statement that he he made and one that those people to whom we are addressing this show really should should pay a great deal of attention. This this man has, has uh, laid out exactly what they can expect. I would just add to that that where Bergoglio may not say these things so explicitly for whatever reason he has, this man, Maradiaga, is the right-hand man of Bergoglio, and therefore I would take very seriously what he's saying. He's talking to Bergoglio every day. Uh, he, he's appointed by Bergoglio. He, he has Bergoglio's ear. Uh, they are very close in their uh, relationship re- with regard to the direction of the Novus Ordo religion. I think these things, which are just so explicit, uh, what, what Father just uh, told us, uh, should be taken very seriously. That this shows what kind of a quote-unquote band of brothers there there is in the Vatican right now. There was a quote in this article that said, uh, "quote We walk as church toward a deep and global renovation. For this renovation to be sincerely Catholic, it must encompass all of the historical dimensions of the church." So. It's very clear that there will be no stone left unturned in this Bergoglio revolution. Well, does that mean we're going to start burning heretics as part of the historical uh, history of the Church uh, and, and inquisitions and various other things? Uh, is, that, is that what he means by that? I don't, I don't, I'm being facetious. <laughs> I don't, I don't you know, what, what does that mean? His history of the Church, history of the Church condemns everything they say, do, and think. I mean, for them to make any reference to the history of the Church before Vatican II is just an absurdity. It's a self-condemnation. That's all it is. I mean, that, that's just a, a, a an asinine statement. Father, let me ask you a question here on this, this social action front, where the, in the quote you took that said, social action changes. It is no longer just charity and development services, but also a struggle for justice, human rights, and liberation. Now, this is nothing new, obviously. Now, that, but at the same time, this is sort of a yeah. sort of a veil, is it not, of of the deeper Bergoglio plan, where he's continuing to shove off Catholicism with this, push it aside, but then bring in all the all the nice feel good things about social justice and social change. And of course, we were just treated or will be treated to a new encyclical on on environmentalism. 
How are we to view this, this term social action as it relates to the Bergoglio revolution? Well, the idea uh, fundamentally is to uh, embrace the ideas and the values of the, the world on the social level. Uh, someone said that he was a, a um, uh, Peronist. Uh, you know, uh, uh, he operated like uh, uh, Juan Perón did. That basically was his his social philosophy. So he's he's uh, taking these ideas that are very popular on the left in secular society and trying to win over the left by saying that this sort of stuff is the essence of the Catholic religion. So uh, it's that, it's, it's this uh, appeal to the values of, uh, of the world. Those kind of people are not going to be breaking down uh, the doors of uh, St. John's in Westchester over here to uh, uh, get into Bergoglio's organization. So it's, 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 it's a uh, hallucinatory dream. But I think that that is, is what is behind his idea, to appeal to the world. All of that attitude is contained in Gaudium et Spes. The idea of the perfection of the world by means of natural virtues or social means, uh, that's all in Gaudium et Spes. If you, it's a, a very long document to read, but the, the attitude comes straight off the page when you read it, that the church is enrolled in, in union with the world, the godless world, the, the UN world, to better humanity that it is a hand-in-hand, hand. it's working hand-in-hand. Hand. So socialism, which is, of course, what they're talking about, and Marxism, communism, uh, redistribution of the wealth, is all very much, uh, that, that's a virtue now. You see, that's like faith, hope, and charity, what it used to be. You see, Marxism, socialism, and communism, uh, and various other social activities, that's what makes you holy and, and saintly. Because these people have no faith. These people have, haven't the slightest clue of anything supernatural. I mean, Bergoglio couldn't even get the Trinity right in his comment. That he says there is no God. God does not exist. And essentially he said there are three gods. He couldn't get it right. I mean, this is catechism stuff that you learn in, in the first grade. And he couldn't get it right. He could not speak from the top of his head about the Trinity. These people are totally devoid. These are Marxists in cassocks. And they want to enlist the Catholic Church into the whole program of Marxism and socialism as if that is the purpose of the founding of the Catholic Church. We saw the last time Bergoglio's comments that uh, the, the Christ was always concerned with the poor and that his gospel was one of the poor. This, this obsession is, is in, indicative of a worldliness, because they don't know anything else but this world. And that's typical of all liberals, uh, godless liberals, what, what we call in this country liberal Democrats. They have no religion, and so they, they have a religion substitute, which is the betterment of humanity in some form or other. And that's why you see them getting all excited about all kinds of various humanistic charities, not to say that all of them are, uh, are bad, or, uh, there's nothing wrong with helping people who are suffering, but it's the attitude behind them and the excitement and the, the sort of religious fervor that they have for these various charities, which is indicative that, that they need a religion substitute. They need some sort of piety to soothe their consciences for their ordinarily grossly immoral lives. 
speaking of Marx and Marxism, we have an article which is from uh, Dr. Robert A. Matei that came out the 3rd of January of this year, and the title of the article, which is on uh, Rarate Celli, was Tango in St. Peter's Square While Bark Goes Adrift. And in this article, he is quoting Cardinal Reinhard Marx, who's the Archbishop of Munich. There's a very telling, and, and this goes right back to what Bishop Sanborn was saying and just now, but also in previous shows as well. And the article says... Uh, Cardinal Archbishop Reinhard Marx, who is the Archbishop of Munich, who supports opening the divorced and remarried and homosexual couples, denies the moral decadence of the West and affirms that, quote, so-called secularization is a necessary development of freedom and a society that is, that is in progress according to the real vision of the gospel, he explains. And he talks on about Francis, and he says, Francesco, quote, wants to lead the church to the original power of its testimony. He has a clear vision of what he wants, but doesn't follow a fixed personal or pre-established plan, nor a government program. He launches signals and gives examples, as he did in the Synod, dedicated to marriage and the family." Unquote. Now, Your Excellency, this goes back to a sermon I heard you give many, many years ago, where you said, would you trust a pilot of your jet to not know where he's going, that he doesn't follow any fixed flight plan? Yes, well, I would deny what the Novus Ordo Bishop says about Bergoglio. I, I think Bergoglio does have a very fixed plan, and that is precisely chaos, and by making comments and making, even more importantly, gestures that are shocking, that he moves uh, little by little uh, what is left of, of the Catholic Church toward a complete apostasy. And when I say what is left of the Catholic Church, that still those people who are still in those structures who still retain the Catholic faith somehow. Somebody like De Matei, I'm going to I'm going to venture to say that he still retains the virtue of faith despite all of the contradiction of the Novus Ordo. And he stays in there with thinking up all of these various explanations in order to make Catholic what is obviously non Catholic. That's what's left of it in there. Those people are, are gradually being moved toward a, a radicalization by Bergoglio. So I, I think that, that, that Novus Ordo Bishop Marx is wrong. Uh, Bergoglio definitely does have an agenda, and it is moving along very, very well uh, from the, his point of view. I would say on that particular point that he has an overall goal and he has an overall plan, but he is a uh, great and he's a tenacious improviser, and he knows how to uh, develop his, his themes. There's the music analogy coming back, because a, um, one of the things in church music is that a good organist has to know how to uh, improvise well, and he has to... Uh, uh, know where his improvisation is is going. There's a great organist who once said that you have to plan your improvisations very carefully. <laughs> so that that, that wouldn't be that, you by any chance. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, there was Marcel Dupre. But oh, okay. <laughs> the um, he was the teacher of of my teacher, by the way. Oh, so okay. his uh, um, his apostolic succession. Uh, as a musician, goes all the way back to Bach, but I think oh, okay. the only thing I got from Bach are the buckle shoes. So, <laughs> but in any event, uh, with that digression aside, you'll hear more about the church organ later. Bergoglio has a good overall plan, 
and he's able to improvise uh, his themes according to the different circumstances. And so in, in uh, that sense, there's a little bit of, of uh, truth in what Marx says, uh, 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 Cardinal Marx uh, says, but it's, it's a, uh, he does in fact know where he's, he's going with all of this, because that, that emerges just from reading him as we've been doing for the past two years. Well, just to uh, go a little bit further with the analogy, I, I think what we're seeing is the Phantom of the Opera, uh, as far as uh, improvisation. <laughs> and and it's a lot of people are afraid to look behind the mask. So. <laughs> There's another story out of the Vatican Insider where Francis is talking about renewing structures that give a false protection. And uh, it, here's the quote. This was uh, from November the 27th of last year. He's talking about setting aside old wineskins. Of course, these rather vague Bergoglio analogies here. He says, quote, As I have recalled many times, we must not be afraid of setting aside the old wineskins, of renewing those habits and those structures that, in the life of the Church, and therefore also in consecrated life, we no longer respond to what God asks of us today to further His kingdom in the world. The structures that give us false protection and that condition the dynamism of charity, the habits that distance us from the flock to which we are sent and prevent us from hearing the cry of those who await the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, Your Excellency, what are the structures that give a false protection and the condition of dynamism of charity? Well, if you look, if you go and look at the Roman Forum and you see the few columns that are left standing there and the rest of it in rubble, those are the structures that he wants to pull down these structures that are hangovers from pre-Vatican II, the few that there are, and I would say it, it, the analogy is perfect, just a few you know, porticos and, and things like that, that that are left standing from the Roman Forum, these have to come down, and they have to give way to a radicalization, and the good news of Jesus Christ is that you can fornicate, you can commit adultery, you can commit sodomy, and you can have transgender operations and uh, commit all sorts of who knows what kind of sexual sins like that. That's the good news of Jesus Christ in his view. That is to preach to the world a, 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 a doctrine and a morality that it is already practicing, a doctrine of socialism, a doctrine of social action, communism, redistribution of wealth, organization of the world according to communistic and socialistic principles. That's the doctrine. And the morality is whatever. That's what he means by that. This is another passage that the conservatives and, and uh, self-proclaimed traditionalists in uh, the Novus Order Institution should look very closely at, because it is he, he's, this is the, uh, another theme again, that things have to be pulled down uh, in order to uh, preach this, uh, uh, this, this uh, gospel that he has in mind. So he's he's actually he's he's talking about structures and uh, reworking different institutions. So if you take say one example, which I think is is uh, something that will come, he has alluded to before, 
is that the idea of the successor of the Holy Office, which is now called the um, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, that uh, that is is retained as an institution, even in its its current uh, shell and, and defanged form in Rome, is uh, something which will be uh, done away with, or, or greatly weakened, and that the authority to look at doctrinal questions will, uh, by uh, law, then be devolved to the different national bishops' conferences. Bergoglio has alluded to this uh, uh, a number of times. So that would be an institutional, um, uh, a major institutional change that uh, that would be really a, a, a new wineskin, as it were, so that these issues would be handled by clergy at the local level, at the national level. And, of course, you would have one um, doctrinal question settled one way in one country and then settled another in another country, and then a moral issue uh, might be settled one way in Africa and, uh, you know, another way in the United States. So this is, I think, what we're looking at. These are the, uh, the new wineskins. And you get the impression from all of these comments that he is going to open the curtain on something really big at a certain point. He's throwing out all of these predictions, uh, radical and dire predictions, uh, of what is to come. It reminds me something of the old movie King Kong when the uh, the man is out in the front of the stage you know, telling the people what they're about to see, and then the curtain goes back and you see the enormous gorilla. I think that's what uh, what Bergoglio's doing here, and and uh, well, you know what happened afterwards. The gorilla got loose and <laughs> and terrified New York. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, but I I think we're in a, in a very analogical situation. Father, I'm going to let you take this next story because we're moving back into more of this uh, common ground that Bergoglio shares with secularists and atheists and the godless and, and uh, you know, that crowd of people, which, you know, he seemed to, from the very moment that he, he came on the scene, has had a special affinity for these people. Like, you know, we, we talked about this many times in, in the previous uh, previous season, like the interview with uh, Eugenio Scalfari, and it seems like we're moving into this era of good feelings with a little bit of secularism sprinkled in there. Can you talk about that? Yes. Show me who your friends are. I mean, he is extremely... Uh, an extremely popular figure, figure with the uh, the godless and with the seculars, because uh, he uh, what he preaches seems to be absolutely uh, eye to eye with what they preach, and they praise him for his um, what he presents as religion, which is uh, basically warmed over uh, socialism. So you get the author of this article. Uh, lists France's concerns tend to be the protection of immigrants, especially avoiding tragedies such as the death of impoverished migrants in uh, Lampedusa, promoting, promoting a multilateral strategies and foreign policy, the role of the United Nations, fostering assistance for developing nations, and uh, critiquing the inequities of global capitalism. So, I mean, uh, for this, he is, is uh, being praised. And then you see someone like the, the French president, uh, the former French president, Sarkozy, um, who talks about a changed uh, attitude. They have this concept in, in um, French politics called laïcité, 
and and the idea is it's it's sort of beyond just separation of church and state. It's a, a negative and uh, discouraging uh, attitude to religion, especially the Catholic religion, and trying to restrict it. But uh, Bergoglio is so popular that uh, Sarkozy uh, talks about now uh, a positive laicite. Uh, there are so many areas of cooperation with Bergoglio now that, uh, you know, we have to move forward uh, together. So this is what you're going to get more of. I think it's uh, more and more preparation for Antichrist, that you have the secular world and the godless world joining forces with a totally secularized church uh, and a church that no longer insists on any of its traditional moral doctrines into a, you know the amalgamation of all that into a, a world that is managed by a single person uh, and uh, which is going to be a nightmare for anybody that has retained the Catholic faith. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is that you see once in a while in the press, uh, someone mentioned that uh, one of uh, a book, that probably one of the few books he's read, that Bergoglio uh, alludes to as Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson, which is a um, uh, which was a futuristic novel written at the beginning of the 20th century, envisioning a one-world government and uh, godless world, and, and uh, the uh, precursor of the Antichrist. Uh, and uh, I find it extremely ironic that he he, he speaks in in uh, praise of such a book because he is he is leading the march toward uh, the Antichrist with his his ideas. Yes, I saw that. I thought the same thing that he fits perfectly the descriptions that uh, Monsignor Benson puts in his book. And, yeah. uh, the uh, the next story that we, that we have here. Well, there's a there's a small story here from. Uh, from Raticelli about uh, a, uh, a man named Bruno Altman, who is a Jewish atheist slash socialist, and he is admitting he was wrong about Francis, that he admits that he is a revolutionary. He says, I recognize that the Pope is leading a revolution in Catholicism that must be observed and shared by the progressive forces on the planet, unquote. So that's uh, yeah, that no shock. signal. <laughs> yeah. He did the major critique of, of, of Bergoglio at the beginning, and then he completely, the, the socialist completely changed his, his line once he saw the reality of, of what Bergoglio was up to. So there's all these flags that are, are uh, going up. It sounds like code, you know, that you people should be behind him, all of you socialists and Marxists and revolutionaries. It sounds like yeah. code. And then we have, on the 25th of November last year, we have, a, we have a story where essentially Bergoglio is trying his hand at diplomacy and politics at the UN, and this was a comment taken from a, you know, from a return flight from Strasbourg to Rome, and it says Pope Francis expressed on how the face of war of aggression must be waged by the Islamic State. He said, quote, true, there is the threat of these terrorists, but there is another threat, and it is state terrorism. When things go up, go up, go up, and each state on its own, you feel you have the right to massacre terrorists, and the terrorists are many that fall innocent. Not quite sure what that means. He goes his on English, to say... His, his command of language is not very good. No, it's He's a dull bulb, and we always have to remember that in everything he says. <laughs> he goes on to say... This is an anarchy of high level that is very dangerous. With terrorism, you have to fight. But I repeat what I said in the previous trip. 
when you have to stop the unjust aggressor, you have to do so with the international consensus, unquote. So here we have more pushing of the UN global agenda. We have, you know, we have to have the international consensus, and I'm not quite sure what this means that many terrorists fall in this and accept to, you know, agree with you, Your Excellency. This is not a very sharp knife. No, no, and you know, it's so easy to obtain an international consensus these days. Oh yeah, right. You know, I just, just look at the UN and you know Russia and China on the Security Council. I mean, it's really, really easy to obtain that. So essentially, he's giving a free pass to the terrorists because we can't lift a finger until the UN says it's okay. That is just a dreamy nonsense. They dream of this world that will somehow you know, function this way. And, uh, uh, I mean, you know, if somebody is coming in and, and shooting you up, you, we're, you're going to shoot back. And that's, it's as simple as that. And here these people are cutting off the heads of innocent people, people who are not even against them necessarily, cutting off their heads in some sort of brutal way with with, with what looks like a kitchen knife. Yeah. I mean, and we're supposed to wait for an international consensus about this? And we, we get it. We get the international consensus from a, a bunch of uh, uh, overfed kleptocrats at the uni- United Nations, right. which is, you know, ridiculous. Uh, is the, the, uh, the whole idea that these clowns uh, should have some sort of a moral authority uh, and uh, decide what is a just war and what is an unjust war is absolutely absurd. Although I've got to say that, remember, this, is, this part of the Bergoglio theme is uh, one that actually was first sounded by Paul VI in his visit to the U.N., Mm-hmm. saying that, you know, that jamais plus la guerre business, and mm-hmm. war no more, and that it is to you, the United Nations, that the people have to come to resolve these issues. So The it, last it, hope it, of the world, that's what he said. The last hope of the world. And this, this, this is the idea, which I might have mentioned before, there's a, a French writer, the Abbe de Nantes, who called Paul VI a concept of uh, the role of the church as, as the mastu, which uh, was an abbreviation in French for the uh, movement for the animation, the spiritual animation of universal democracy. That that was the role of the church, and the church would go through the UN somehow to accomplish this and to accomplish the goals of peace. And it's absurd. It's absurd. Yes, it is the flowering of 19th century liberal Catholicism. The, the main figure in, in defining liberal Catholicism in the 1820s was a priest by the name of Felicite de Lamennais. His axiom was Catholicize liberalism and liberalize Catholicism. And that's exactly what the Novus Ordo wants to do. It wants to give a spiritual dimension to the secularist world and wants to tie itself into the work of, of this secularist, godless world. And that's why it takes on all of this liberalization. That's the other part of the axiom. In other words, we, will, we the Catholic Church, will become like you. You should take some steps to become like us and take on a, a spirituality in this uh, world apostasy and, and this world that is proceeding uh, uh, inexorably toward a, an antichrist. That, that's, 
that's it's as old as horses and carriages. This this whole idea, uh, and and it is something that took hold right after the French Revolution. That uh, that we can baptize the revolution, and that Catholics can be good revolutionaries, uh, and that has taken on different forms as as the decades have gone by. But it is the same principle. Well, we have another story here. Uh, this, and we actually have a return of a buzzword here that we heard last season: Pelagianism. This is uh, seems to be coming back. <laughs> I think it's now part of tradition, if I'm not. <laughs> he probably <laughs> knows an- about as much about Pelagianism as he knows about the Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> well, and speaking of what Francis is talking about, apparently the the big problem in the church today is that is that the the faithful are trying to tame the Holy Spirit, and and right. he, where Francis says, quote, the Holy Spirit brings forth different different charisms in, in the church, which at first glance may seem to create disorder. Uh, okay, and then he moves on to say. In truth, the Church shows her fidelity to the Holy Spirit, inasmuch as she does not try to control or tame him. We Christians become true missionary disciples, able to challenge consciences, when we throw off our defensiveness and allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit. He is freshness, imagination, and newness. Our defensiveness is evident when we are entrenched within our ideas and our own strengths, in which case we slip into Pelagianism. In your when you were in school, your excellency, did they ever talk about freshness, imagination, newness? No, those are all code words for modernism. That's all. That means the more liberal you are, the more the spirit is with you. And I would retort the whole thing, uh, and this, uh, uh, the, I would answer him back in this way: You, Bergoglio, you are not entrenched in your ideas. Look at you! You insult everybody that doesn't agree with you. You do not have an entrenched ideas. He thinks that whatever agrees with him is the Holy Ghost. So, you know, if he gets up in the morning and decides, you know, I think we should change something else today, well, that's the Holy Ghost. But if somebody says, you know, Mr. B, we think you're wrong, wow, you're, you're entrenched, you're rigid, you're all of these other things. That's all it means. I mean, does he have a phone to the Holy Ghost? Does he, does he have some sort of experience of the Holy Ghost? The Holy Ghost speaks through revelation. And revelation is given to us and proposed to us by the teaching of the Catholic Church, which never changes. That's where you find the mind of God. That's where you find the spirit of God. You don't find it in Mr. B's bird brain. I mean, you know, that's just an absurdity. And, you know, when people get a fresh idea or some imaginative idea, who knows what that means, you know, in, in his context, imaginative, I mean... You know, immoralities that we haven't even thought of yet. You know, that's the Holy Ghost. But if you, you know, bring up a commandment of God, well, then you're a Pelagian. You've, you've, you've bottomed out into the pit of Pelagianism. He has no idea what Pelagianism is. He never read that book. He, he you know, this man is really, really ignorant of church history, sacred theology, everything. He, he is he is uh, just like a straight line on the oscilloscope. He's a flatliner, I think. Yes. The, uh, <laughs> I think that's the term. Uh, the theme again that he sounds. I mean, all of the uh, all of my sixties and seventies alarms are going off. As you say, Your Excellency, this idea of entrenched within it, our ideas and our own strengths. The idea behind that is that, as you say, we have to be feel free to overthrow everything. Everything otherwise, 
uh, we slip into Pelagianism, which is his code word in, in his little brain, for um, people who uh, still adhere to the uh, traditional Catholic faith somehow. So it's either that you get out of these narrow little ideas, which, as we've said, these concepts come from, from revelation uh, itself, or you slip into, the, you slip into Pelagianism uh, by not listening to the Spirit. So it's all that code, it's that theme again. Yeah, and oddly, he's only talking to 4% of, of Novus Ordo Catholics. The, if you look at polls, only 4% do not like him. Yeah. The rest of them really think he's great. He could do anything. He could prescribe any law. He could do anything at all. He could make all the radical changes he wants. Everyone would think it's great except for a 4% whom he would regard as Pelagian. I don't even know why he's concerned about it. He might be concerned about bishops who could go into schism, however. Mm-hmm. And schism means sedevacantism because... <laughs> Obviously, they're not going to go into schism thinking we're separating from the Pope. They're going to say, this man is not the Pope, and therefore we separate from him. That's, that's what, quote-unquote, schism will be. And that will be the first great step toward the, the solution of the problem. Yeah. But, you know, what is he worried about? Who's stopping him? What what is what is uh, you know who does whom does he need to convince? I think part of it though is is sort of rousing the troops that uh, to get people who would really like to be on the cutting edge of some sort of a radical transformation of the post-Vatican II Church into to something uh, you know uh, uh, virtually unrecognizable. That uh, this is his his way of of uh, leading them along and firing them up, that this is the great anti-Pelagian uh, crusade. So it's, it's, you're, you're creating an enemy to direct people's enthusiasm and their attention against. It's like uh, Orwell's 1984, that, that mm-hmm. uh, uh, you, have to ha- you have to have a target. You have to have a target. And he knows that from his, his leftist background. So the real cadres, the real commissars of the Bergoglio revolution um, have to have a, uh, uh, a target that they can really get upset against. And that's the, uh, that's the Pelagians. Mm-hmm. I'm a card-carrying Pelagian, so. <laughs> in the Bergoglian sense. Not in the historical sense, obviously. But Bergoglio, I mean, I, I am, you know, card-carrying uh, and, and, you know, just uh, unabashed. I think you have platinum status on that, don't you? <laughs> yes. <Is it laughs> I'm a million miler. Yep. Yeah, Pelagian, Pelagian is, elite, yeah, I yeah. think, is the... <laughs> <laughs> They let you on that unpiloted airplane first. <laughs> Father, we're going to talk about the the buzz... You know, the buzz terminology for the month of January on Francis Watch here. And we're moving into the healthy theological pluralism. That's, uh, that, that's, the, that's the new Bergoglio quote. And he's talking in an article in the Vatican Insider about his idea of what a good theologian is, what, what a true theologian is. And he says, uh, quote, Along with the Christian people, the theologian opens his eyes and ears to the signs of the times. Starting from this foundation, in a healthy pluralism, various theological approaches developed in different cultural contexts and using different methods cannot ignore each other, but must enrich and correct each other in theological dialogue. 
there, there are the buzzwords again. There's the signs of the times, and that's a Vatican twoism, and uh, that we have to look at the signs of the times. And it was also a, a, part, a popular rock song by Petulia Clark, I think, back in the '60s or '70s. Uh, you know, she had she canonized her. Right uh, no, well, she had a good voice, you know, at least, and. So she also encouraged reading the signs of the times. So that's your that's your 60s, 70s buzzword there, as is this idea of pluralism, various approaches, etc. So what you have here is we are um, uh, that one can have uh, no real uh, certitude about any theological principles. You just simply have different approaches. These are all conditioned by uh, you know the uh, culture in which you live. If if you, you uh, live in uh, you know Italy, perhaps you're going to be uh, conditioned by Italian culture, and your theology is going to reflect that. If uh, you live in Tonga, your theology is going to be affected by Tonga culture. Uh, if you uh, live in Kazakhstan, uh, that's a cultural influence, and all these things are going to come together and dialogue with each other, you really can't have any sort of certitude, uh, because that would be ideology, but somehow uh, the, the uh, Kazakhs and, and, and the Tonga people and the Italians can all enrich each other, and then we go on to another uh, step in theological process. That's what it works. It's it's the more buzzwords. Pure modernism as well, if you read Pascendi, the encyclical Pascendi, the purpose of, of authority is to gather the religious experience and to, to record it, so to speak, to, to hear it and listen to it. Then from there to make dogmas based on the religious experience of the time. So this obviously opens the door to evolution of dogma. Uh, nothing is fixed. Uh, this is what we think today. And with that theory, you see, they can say, well, you know, Trent was good for its time. Trent was true for the uh, 16th century. But we have evolved, so it's all true. But it's just uh, there is a law of evolution, and now we're we're here. We might be someplace else tomorrow, but we're here now. And and uh, th- this is pure modernism, condemned by Simpice X as the synthesis of all heresies. Uh, and so there's really nothing new here. Uh, it's all a lot of nonsense and horse feathers. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. You don't find out about God by listening to people on the street. You find out about God by going to the sources of revelation. And that's why he revealed himself. If if we found out about God by listening to people, we would still be worshipping idols. I think your Ratzinger called those substantial anchorages. Yes, like a cruise ship in the Caribbean that goes from trinket place to trinket place. Everybody gets off, buys the trinkets that are usually made in China anyway, gets back on the ship and they go on to someplace else. And so those are the anchorages. So the next story that we're going to look at here is the Bergoglio cry that we must avoid simple applications of doctrine. So the Bergoglio doctrine death squad strikes again here, and, and he's talking about, uh, he, he's, he's sort of directing the bishops' conferences in their reflections on the synod and marriage and what the faithful think about marriage and how the church should react to certain things. And he's talking about the, the series of 46 questions that they're going to try to figure out answers to for the next synod. And he says, quote, The proposed questions which follow 
are intended to assist the bishops' conferences in their reflection and to avoid in their responses a formulation of pastoral care based simply upon an application of doctrine. It is a matter of rethinking with renewed freshness and enthusiasm, with revelation transmitted in the church's faith to tell us about the beauty, the role, and the dignity of the family. This is some confusing thing, apparently. They're still trying to figure this out. Well, we talked about well, this. Which what one are we of supposed it? to apply? Except, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, is, is His Excellency or Father Chicago going to be the first one to laugh out loud? I mean, <laughs> what do you do in pastoral work except apply doctrine? <laughs> so uh, it, the, the the proposition is 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 crazy. It's so stupid. That that's the uh, uh, doctrine is is the whole basis of pastoral care. Yes, it's the basis of everything. It's the foundation of the whole yeah. building. And if your pastoral care deviates from doctrine, there's something wrong with it. But he wants it to be wrong. He he's going through the back door of pastoral care, and he wants to change the doctrine. So we'll yeah. be quote unquote merciful to fornicators, adulterers, and sodomites. And by being merciful for a few decades, we'll eventually conclude that all of that stuff is okay. That's that's a translation of what he's saying. The other thing that that builds on your earlier comment, Your Excellency, is the uh, about the the evolution of of doctrine of listening to people. Part of the thing, uh, part of the uh, idea in connection with questionnaires for people at the last synod, and then questionnaires for the bishops and the people in preparation for the next synod is uh, exactly that idea, that we get the information that we need uh, to formulate doctrine from the people of God. And that somehow, based on their experience, they are uh, going to uh, put us in the, the, the right way in understanding how doctrine, as it were, should, uh, should progress. So the, their, their practical understanding is going to be given to us, and then it's going to coalesce, and we're going to make a judgment on that. So again, it's it is, it's like modernism on steroids. Father, <laughs> are you saying that next Sunday at St. Gertrude's and Your Excellency, next Sunday Most Holy Trinity, you're not going to be handing out questionnaires with a full questions from the faithful on this? <laughs> Uh, well, don't expect anything. <laughs> uh, no, don't expect anything. But uh, expect coffee and donuts afterwards at St. Gertrude's. Uh, <laughs> we don't even have that here. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Father, let's, you know, in the sake of time here, let's let's go ahead and move on to this next article, which was from a top French conservative commentator. And essentially this wraps up what what, what he's saying. This sort of frames... Everything about Bergoglio when he says Francis favors Christianity without dogmas. Can you talk about that? This sums it up, and it is uh, refreshing to see someone uh, from the conservative wing in the uh, Novus Ordo institution. To uh, it's encouraging to see someone lack, latch onto that because that's what's going on. Uh, uh, this particular commentator says that Francis talks about the roots of Europe, never makes clear that they are Christian. He exalts spirituality, but barely mentions the name of God. He advocates the generalist welcoming of migrants while ignoring uh, the ceaseless waves in the Mediterranean that transform Europe bit by bit into a land of Islam. Uh, 
the leader of Christians does not look like he worries about it or is even uh, concerned about it. He does not seem to mind that the most vengeful and sarcastic critics of the Church applaud him. He is a post-Christian pope, an adherent of Christianity without dogmas. I mean, what a uh, what a condemnation! You know, yeah, it's what, very damning. Uh, it really is. Uh, you know that Christianity without dogmas. That's uh, a quote from, and I'm wondering if he, I'm wondering if he's even quoting from the French, very eminent author Monseigneur de Lassus, who wrote uh, maybe around 1900 or early part of the 20th century, who said that this is the program of the uh, what he called the anti-Christian movement, to have a Christianity without dogmas. That 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 is the uh, he's saying that's going there's going to be a complete transformation of Catholicism and it will end up as a Christianity without dogmas, uh, and and um, it just that rings in my ear because that that's the first time I saw that phrase. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if he's even quoting it, perhaps unconsciously, but that's he's exactly right. The reason that Bergoglio doesn't talk about God is because he doesn't know who God is. Uh, he has he has no idea, no clue who God is. So that's why he doesn't, you know, he avoids the subject. Another footnote on this that I would put in is the the commentator uh, mentions that um, uh, the leader of Christians doesn't look like he worries about the fact that uh, Europe is becoming Muslim. Uh, I uh, saw another uh, article which didn't make it into the program uh, this time around. It was uh, written, I think, on Catholic World Report. And it it was the the author was it was a long article and the author was absolutely serious. Uh, he said that now, well, the Pope and the Vatican have to make provision for what will happen when uh, Europe becomes Muslim because it's going to become Muslim, and uh, the uh, it's not a question of if but when, and then what will be the uh, status of uh, the Vatican and uh, the Church there will. The Vatican be uh, allowed to function, uh, and uh, as it has been uh, up until now, uh, the author said it seems uh, you know extremely unlikely. So therefore, the Vatican should make plans to move to uh, uh, to have a backup plan to move to a foreign country, uh, like uh, somewhere in North America or uh, South America, for when the Muslims take over. Mm-hmm. And he yes. was absolutely serious. Absolutely serious that this is what's going to happen. Look at what happened to Constantinople. Yeah. That was the seat of a mighty empire, and uh, it was taken over, and uh, the, the great cathedral built by Justinian became a mosque, and that's what it is to this day. And so we can you know look forward to minarets uh, surrounding St. Peter's Basilica, and uh, the Turkish or the the uh, Islamic uh, symbols hanging, you know, and, and in it, and all of the statues gone, and everything else sacred in it uh, gone, and it'll be a big mosque. That's what awaits us. We would like to remind you that you're listening to Francis Watch on the Restoration Radio Network. I am your host, Justin Soder, and today I am joined by His Excellency, Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, as well as Father Anthony Chicada, the Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Today we have been uh, starting a Season 4 series of Francis Watch, talking about the radical and irreversible changes Bergoglio has been speaking about since we last had our show in November of 2014. We'd like to remind you that Francis Watch is a production of the Restoration Radio Network, 
All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. So, Father, I want to move on here to the, uh, we'll, we'll call this the universal salvation file of the Bergoglio file cabinet. And uh, he's uh, he's using the, con, uh, the Vatican II Constitution, Gaudium et Spes, which His Excellency spoke of earlier, to, to talk about the idea that we're all going to be in heaven together. And this was a Rarate Chili story from November the 26th, where he says, The conciliar constitution, Gaudium et Spes, faced with these questions that forever resonate in the hearts of men and women states, we do not know the time for the consummation of the earth and of humanity, nor do we know all how things will be transformed. He goes on to say, the church's destination is, as the Bible says, the new Jerusalem or paradise. More than a place, it is a state of soul in which our deepest hopes are fulfilled in a superabundant way and our being, as creatures and children of God, reach their full maturity. We will finally be clothed in the joy, peace, and love of God in a complete way, without any limit, and we will come face to face with him. It is beautiful to think of this, to think of heaven. All of us will be up there together. All of us. Is that what the church teaches, Father? <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what's the point? <laughs> what is the, the point of our Lord's message? If uh, salvation is automatically assured for uh, for every creature, whether... Uh, the uh, person believes or doesn't believe, whether he lives in accordance with the moral law or does not live in accord with the moral law. All of that is swept away by a statement like this. And, you know, once again, how many more of these statements uh, are people going to try to explain away? This this, uh, vitiates the uh, whole purpose of the history uh, history of our salvation. It's universal salvationism, which uh, Bergoglio is is, uh, preaching. As I say, I don't know what more people need. He made a similar statement about a cemetery in Rome next to San Lorenzo inside the walls, where he said everybody in this cemetery is saved. I'm thinking it would be great to get into that cemetery somehow. You know, that's better than, than getting saved at some sort of Protestant revival meeting. You know, yes. You can, you know, be sure that everybody in that cemetery is going to heaven. You don't even have to walk up the aisle to get saved. You're carried, you know, <laughs> no. into the carried into the cemetery. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it, it's, uh, so I, I'm going to look into that the next time I go to Rome, see if I can uh, get a place in there. Yeah, reserve a plot. You know, I've got one for me, too. The next story that we're going to cover was a Vatican Insider story from December the 19th, and it was more of the colorful Bergoglio language that the church is sterile, egoistic, and thinks she can take charge of consciences, which, you know, this, we've, we've talked about this before. It's almost hard to say that without laughing. So he says, and today is also a day to pray for our mother church because of so much sterility within the people of God a sterility arising from egoism, from power, when the church believes she can do everything, that she can take charge of the consciences of people, walk along the road of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, along the road of hypocrisy. Yes, the church is sterile. Well, the first source of sterility is the birth control pill. But I think uh, we're going going to discuss that a little later. Um, But That's why Europe will be Islamic, because of that horrid pill. 
which is approved of in, on the pastoral level ever since the 1960s. And that's another, you know, comment later. But, uh, you know, that's why there are no children in Europe. So the, the charge of the consciences, Your Excellency, that, that uh, uh, um, uh, do you want to address that one? Uh, the, in yeah. effect, the church can't take care of the charge of, 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 uh, of people's consciences? Well, this arises from a false notion of conscience. The true notion right. of conscience is merely an act of the intellect applying the moral law to an act about to be performed. So if you, you know, have your hand on the trigger and, and you're thinking, is this right or wrong that I shoot this person? Uh, th- that's a judgment of conscience whereby you are applying the moral law to something you're about to do. So uh, conscience, is, uh, the false notion of conscience is that it is a type of faculty, some sort of uh, a special uh, department of the brain or the soul whereby we know what's right and wrong. And, the, of course, the, the Holy Ghost comes and tells us what's right and wrong. And what's right for me might be wrong for you and vice versa, so we can't get too uh, excited and we have to accept each other and we have to be compassionate and all of the other code words that they use. So the, the, that, that's what he's talking about is the supremacy of conscience over dogma, which is precisely Vatican II. That is the cardinal error of Vatican II. It is the soul of ecumenism. It is the soul of religious liberty. And it is the soul of all of the other changes that have been made. That is the right of conscience. And this, by that is the false notion of conscience, that it is something that tells you what's right and wrong, not something what applies the law, but which tells you what the law is, and which does not come from the church, but rather from some private inspiration, that that has primacy over the teaching of the church. This is exactly what he's saying. I mean, he could not say it any more explicitly. And the church is there merely to suggest things to you, but never to oblige your conscience. Oh, goodness, no. Well, Your Excellency, I'm going to let us move on here to the the issue of contraception. And this was uh, this was a story from the 12th of January of this year. It's a Vatican Insider story. Speaking about the prophetic Paul VI on contraception and being merciful towards special cases, it says here, speaking off the cuff again, Francis said, quote, I think of the blessed Paul VI who faced the problem of defending openness to family life in the face of a population increase. He knew about the difficulties families were facing. This is why he was so merciful towards special cases and asked confessors to be very understanding and merciful in his encyclical. If you would look at the poll numbers today, it seems like everyone is a special case now. I would say right off the bat, the post-war prosperity was one that the world had never seen before. In Europe and in the United States, North America, I mean, in those countries where the birth control pill is eaten the most, there was a post-war prosperity that had never been known before. We read about saints that had many children in their families and who were living in dirt-poor conditions. You know, there was no new development of some pressure upon families. That's a ridiculous thing. What the real motive is is that the women don't want to have babies and don't want to stay home and take care of children, but rather would rather be out on in the world popping the birth control pill in order to be there uh, and to live promiscuous lives. Uh, and to to abandon their role in the home. That That is the, let's face it, the real motive of the birth control pill. 
It is. It also gives uh, occasion for license to all sorts of unmarried people, uh, people who now don't get married until they're you know thirty something. You know, have they all been living absolutely pure lives according to the sixth and ninth commandments up to that time? I tend to doubt it. I think that they have been using birth control devices and birth control pills and leading lives that are absolutely horrendous. And this is the reality before us. And that birth control pill is like the pill of the devil that has unleashed uh, uh, so much evil upon the world. It has transformed the Catholic woman into something that is that is unrecognizable. Uh, and women in general. Uh, it has totally destroyed the morals of young people. Uh, and uh, you know, back in the 1930s, if a druggist was were, uh, were was known to be selling uh, birth control devices, he would be arrested. Those things were considered to be uh, an occasion of immorality. And now it's you know practically a virtue to take the pill in order to reduce the number of uh, children. Now they're getting a little worried because there are not enough children, and uh, the whole idea of what's going to happen to Europe and this country, too. Uh, so they're now uh, reversing themselves a little bit, but they're probably too late because it takes a very long time to reverse those effects. So this this idea of showing mercy and all, mercy means, uh, you know, it's a code word for, oh, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. I remember Bishop Sheen. I was uh, watching him uh, on a television show when I was in the Modernist Seminary shortly after Humanae Vitae came out. Uh, in the fall of 68. And he was given, it was a talk show, and the person said, this woman comes to you and she has a terrible problem, and uh, if she has another baby, she's going to die, and all of these horrible things. And the man said, what would you tell this woman? And and he would he said, I would tell her to continue with the birth control, meaning the artificial birth control. Yeah. That was Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. So I heard him say it. I practically fell off the chair when he said it. But that's that's what mercy means. Mercy means, oh, you have a hard case, you know, and, and God understands, and God bless you, and here's absolution, and go ahead. That's what it means. It's, it's just a, a complete degradation of, of Catholic morality, that's all. That um, what his excellency said is not, a, a, you know, an exaggeration. We know in the practical order how that was applied, uh, and that indeed was the case. So when Bergoglio speaks these code words, uh, we know how to understand them. And right away, the um, when he spoke in praise of uh, Paul the Six and Humanae Vitae a little bit in the, the uh, Philippines. Not only he, but also Cardinal Tegel, who is the ordinary down in the Philippines, emphasized this idea the next day that, well, I mean, don't get, don't get excited about the fact that he um, spoke favorably about certain elements of Humanae Vitae, because, you know, it's uh, important that we have this, this uh, idea of, of mercy and sensitivity for particular cases while remaining faithful to the tradition. So that's, uh, it's, it in fact is, is all this code again. If you look at the end of Bergoglio's praise of Humanae Vitae, mm -hmm. the last sentence is, but Paul VI said that we should have compassion on the hard cases, something to that effect. Therefore, totally obliterating any sort of teeth in Humanae Vitae. Yes. Yeah. Well, the uh, other thing, the uh, story that I stumbled across after we, we did the show plan was uh, a discussion 
of these statements by Francis in the National Catholic Reporter, which is the most progressive of the progressive uh, modernist publications in uh, the United States. And the article is, is by a man named Robert Mickens, who is a, who is a Roman and Vatican correspondent for many years, and in fact I think still lives in Rome. And uh, it's entitled Learning to Get Real with Pope Francis. So uh, he says it all depends, everything depends on how you interpret Humanae Vitae. That's essential to understanding what Pope Francis really meant in his recent string of remarks on having children. It's a line that comes from the Pope himself. In a March interview with uh, an Italian newspaper, he was asked the uh, um, uh, question about whether the Church should take another look at Humanae Vitae, and the reporter uh, said Cardinal Martini, who was the Archbishop of Milan, your confer, I thought it was probably time to do so. So here's how Bergoglio replied, it all depends on how Humanae Vitae is interpreted. Paul VI, in the end, urged priest professors to be very merciful and attentive to concrete situations. He, uh, then he praised Paul VI for having the courage to defend, to take a stand against the majority, to defend the moral discipline, and to oppose present and future neo-Malthusianism. So the, the, the uh, idea is, is that Bergoglio sets before that by that you interpret humanae vitae in such a way to, uh, uh, in the practical order, obliterate any uh, prohibition against contraception. Now, I would like to add a footnote to that, too, mm -hmm. that once you start, quote-unquote, interpreting these, uh, doc these uh, documents, well, you could say that about the Society of St. Pius X. In other words, they say, well, we're going to interpret it in our way. Well, they are opening the door to interpreting it in another way. The, the document says what it says. And once you start fooling around with the meaning of the document by interpreting it, you open the door to really everything. And so you, you, you have a church in which there is... Uh, there are a, there is a whole rainbow of various interpretations of doctrines and a, 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 a doctrinally pluralistic church, and that's really what SSPX is asking for. I just put that as a footnote that they're they're trying to wriggle out of what the what Vatican II says by saying, well, we interpret it in a certain way. Well, you could do the same thing the other way. And, and this is part uh, not only of SSPX, but of, of the wider mess in the uh, post-Vatican II institution that you have a uh, that all of these uh, uh, different uh, contradictory interpretations they end up being contradictory in, in uh, practice are possible and uh, seemingly according to the rules all equally valid. Yes. We're going to have to move on from that story and, and to the next one, which will probably be the highlight of our episode today, which is this uh, gem of Bergolian eloquence. He's talking about responsible parenthood. This is a story from January the 20th of this year. It's a Vatican Insider News story. And essentially, he's, he's talking about the problem of being responsible parents and etc. So here's what he says. Quote, I think that three is the number of children per family that the experts say is correct to maintain the population, three per couple. When there are fewer than this, then there is the other extreme, which we see in Italy, where I have heard, I do not know if it is true, that from 2024 there will not be the money to pay pensioners. The key well, phrase... Yeah, that's the big, the big problem. 
Yeah, that's terrible. really <laughs> yeah. terrible. Social, you know. <laughs> yeah. The key phrase to answer this question is one that the church has always used, responsible parenthood. How does one do this? Through dialogue. Every person accompanied by the has to find out how to achieve responsible parenthood. Some believe that, excuse the expression, to be good Catholics we must be like rabbits. No, responsible parenthood. You know, this is... Uh, <laughs> well, the church be... has always used... You know, Mr. B, could you point this out in the Denzinger from before Vatican II, going back to the early church, the term responsible parenthood? Would you please, I, well, I, I defy I'm you, to show me that expression. The church has always used. I mean, what an idiot. I'm sorry to be so bold, but what a complete idiot to just come out with some sort of stupid statement like that. You can't find that word, that expression, in any document of the Church. Responsible to whom? The only person we're responsible to in reproduction is God. All right? And, and God is the author of, of, the, the, of creation and procreation. We cooperate in, in God's creation. We are responsible solely to Him. And that's why... Contraception is wrong. That's why abortion is wrong. That is any kind of misuse of the procreation process, mortally sinful. That's why same-sex marriage is wrong, because it in, interrupts that and is, is contrary to that. Uh, so I mean, you know, again, I mean, it just you make it makes you laugh. I mean, this goes with the Pelagianism, and and then come out with that rabbit's business. I mean, again, an insult an insult to people who have obeyed the moral law and have left it to God, God's providence, to see how many children they would have, that they are like rabbits, you know, that they are uncontrolled breeders. What an insult. This man is full of insults. He, he really is a, is a horrid man. Again, you say uh, uh, someone who still has uh, the Catholic faith uh, who uh, and, and Catholic moral principles? Who hears stuff like this? Uh, you know, it's another example of how uh, far this guy is from uh, Catholic faith and from Catholic moral teaching. And on top of it, how stupid he is to say something like that. And it, uh, it, it is a uh, it, it's it's another. It should be another red flare to people who are worried about these things, that this man is not what he says he is. That's why he says these insane things. And responsible parenthood in, in the modern idea is that, well, you don't have so many children that you can't afford the $50,000 per year uh, university fees in order that they get their doctorates. They go to you know, age 28 to get their doctorates. That's what is meant by responsible parenthood, that you are able to provide for everybody so you have trophy babies, that is, you wait until you're 35, you have one or two trophy babies, and you shower them with goods and money and all sorts of uh, prestige, uh, prestigious schools, and you, you hold out to them the idea of, of becoming somebody great. That's responsible parenthood in, in the, the modern mentality. So you, you can only do that with one or two children. The next story we have here, which I'll direct toward Your Excellency, is because uh, we're always concerned about health on this program, and it says rigidity is a sign of a weak heart. So Your Excellency, you know, <laughs> we, 
we could. Well, my EKG was really good. I, I think that, that, you know, there's something wrong with that. Uh, I must be an exception or something, but I'm extremely rigid. And yet I have a strong heart, so apparently I'll be around for a while being rigid. Uh, so that's just more of the same, you know. It, it, we should really lump all of those insane things and insulting things that he says into one big pot, and and uh, and and comment on them in about five seconds or you know just a one minute worth of comments and laughing, because they're really not worth thinking about. They're so stupid. So we'll skip past the title. We can't be bookkeepers of God's love. We'll skip past that. <laughs> <laughs> just one more. Idiotic analogy for saying the same old stupid thing. But, you know, I would just point out to the people in the new church once again, it's the same, they're the same themes. And it's all, uh, these are all cracks against um, uh, the Catholic moral law, church law, Catholic doctrine, and everything. It's one after another. And you can't, uh, I read his stuff every day, and I can hardly keep up with it. I read it very rigidly, I think. Yeah, yeah terrible. You're another rigid one. I think you've been rigid for a long time. Yeah, I, uh, I uh, may be a bookkeeper of God's love, but also I'm a bookkeeper of uh, Bergoglio's stupidity. So. <laughs> and, boy, there's plenty to try to balance. Let's go to the next story, which I think actually does, does pertain to the conversation here, and, and this is uh, Bergoglio's explanation for departures from the Church. Uh, the title of this this is a uh, this is Verate Celli story from December the seventh of last year. Despite the quote unquote Francis effect, people keep leaving the church, as he explains, because of clericalism. That means when you th- that means priests walking around in berettas and cassocks saying their office. This is what you you know think of when you and, and people paying attention too much to these priests who are entrenched in rigidity and legalism and Phariseeism and all of the other words that he uses. Uh, And, of course, it's nonsense. Here we've had 50 years, 50 years of Vatican II, and everything is sagging. And South America, which was their last hope on the face of the planet for, for some sort of resurgence, is now also sagging, and people are going over to the Protestant evangelicals, or they're just not going at all. I mean, Europe is already uh, a wasteland. North America is becoming a wasteland. Uh, and, and now South America is following suit. Uh, they really, I mean, maybe with the exception of the Philippines or a few other places, they really can't look to any single place for what you'd call, you know, uh, serious Catholics or people who where you're going to have a, a, a continuity. And besides that, even if they had doubled their numbers since Vatican II, the real issue is not numbers. The issue is continuity of doctrine and continuity of the faith. Even is, you know, if they had tri- trebled their numbers, the the continuity of faith is the is the real issue. But it it is a sort of a, uh, an extra argument against Vatican II that it has emptied out all of the institutions of the Church that were filled up at the end of Pius XII's reign. But, you know, you had a flourishing Church from the point of view of numbers and schools, you know, seminaries, vocations, uh, everything, uh, nuns, brothers. The whole apparatus was there. It was flourishing, and now it has all just 
fallen down. I would use the the, the Roman ruins as a as a great analogy. You look out on those things and you think, my goodness, what this once was, and it's all flattened now. There's hardly anything left of it, and that's that's what we're looking at in in what Vatican II has done to the Catholic Church. And there's still, I mean, nothing will move them off. No one will ever say, well, gee, maybe Vatican II wasn't such a good idea after all. (laughs) They are so prideful (laughs) and so attached to their ideas. Talk about attached. That that as everything is burning around them, they they will never say, well, maybe we made a mistake. So... Yeah, moving on here to the story from from Rotticelli on the 29th of November in in Istanbul, Turkey. Francis bows to the schismatic, bless me and the Church of Rome, he says, which is interesting in the story that the that the iMedia correspondent makes it clear that the patriarch was so stunned he did not give the blessing before kissing the Pope. Now, this is not the first time this has happened, Your Excellency. Why is this constant constant gesturing towards Bartholomew? Where he talks about trying to get together with the schismatic Orthodox. Well, it's it's just ecumenism. It's it's that uh, both sides uh, were were at fault, and that uh, we can live together in a uh, a Roman primacy merely of honor, and we're not going to proselytize in your countries. Uh, we will leave you alone, and we would like you to do the same, and and let's get all together in one big happy communion. Again, a footnote. Patriarch Bartholomew is validly ordained and consecrated. Bergoglio is neither of those things. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it was sort of appropriate. At least he could have gotten something valid. Uh, you know, uh, And all of the bishops and priests around him are either invalidly or dubiously ordained in the Vatican. So maybe he was looking for a blessing that might work. <laughs> Obviously, a product of theological rigidity here. Yeah, I think I think uh, I'm just hopeless on that point. <laughs> but no, it's it's you know praying toward Mecca and all of that. Well, it's, the, the, it's, the whole it's thing though is is uh, that it goes back to the idea that doctrine and dogma don't matter. So he says that that well, uh, and in another place in schismatics, that uh, communion does not uh, signify submission to us if you get in communion with us, and that uh, also that um, he says that uniatism, in other words, the idea of uh, the or the the practice of the Eastern churches coming out of schism and becoming uniates, uh, united to the Catholic Church, that. Uh, this idea is outdated, which is a slap in in, uh, in their face. And again, it's the idea that the dogma doesn't matter. You have uh, the, the um, Cardinal Marx, who, as far as uh, I'm concerned, should have the first name of Harpo. That should be his, his nickname. <laughs> uh, so, this, so this clown says that we can learn from Luther. <laughs> right, and then we we have to learn to read his his texts appreciatively, uh, to learn from his thoughts. I would like to translate some of his thoughts from Hartman Grieser's life of of uh, Luther, yeah. but this would definitely turn into a non-family show. Yes, yes, yes. We have to put a, a PG or even a restricted on that one. Yeah. Uh, like so, uh, Christ committed adultery three times. That's a quote from. Mm-hmm. 
again, this is the ideas don't matter. He said that um, uh, another story from Vatican Insider that uh, Muslims bear treasures of inestimable worth, spiritual treasures of inestimable worth. I'm more, more worried about the plastic explosives that uh, that they bear. It's it's other it's it's utterly crazy to uh, to say something like that. But again, it's it's founded in his his idea that dogma is something that really doesn't matter. It's, yeah. it's all up for grabs. Mm-hmm. How about that mm-hmm. kitchen knife? That would be uh, there's. there's uh... We're coming close to the end of our show here, but there's a there's there's just a few small stories here we want to get to, and one of these is a uh, a press release from the Ministry of Truth. I was talking to Father Chicada about this before the program started from December the 10th that uh, Cardinal Peter Erdo's opening speech here, that this is a Vatican Insider story, where he says that no truths were called into question at the Senate. He says, none of the speeches, however, called into question the fundamental truths regarding the sacrament of marriage, indissolubility, unity, faithfulness, and openness to life. Now, that is just a flat, that is just a bold lie. I mean, anybody I don't think they talked Google, about any of those things. I don't think they did. Well, <laughs> I don't yeah, think they addressed true. them. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't deny them. They didn't talk <laughs> about them. <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing is that that uh, it's, it's a bold-faced lie in the sense that, that um, uh, obviously – uh, the uh, press reaction and the worried reaction of, of, of the uh, different members of the laity and the commentators uh, demonstrated that uh, it's exactly those points that were called into question. So it's, it's, uh, it's a crazy statement. And the, uh, it's the idea that, uh, uh, you know, once again, nothing has changed, but in fact, it has changed. Yeah, so you know we have so many more stories we can, we can cover here, but a lot of this has been covered on, on the previous program that we did on on the synod, um, the, the the synod go and send some more that was back in October, and uh, you know more more stories on divorce and remarriage, on the recognition of gay relationships, which we have you know the Belgian bishop Johann Bonny, who we spoke of of uh, Antwerp, was talking about there should be a recognition of diversity of forms. Uh, that, that you know, we must be open-minded and have a pastoral focus of Pope Francis, who has given the courage to speak about these issues. So that, you know, they, a lot just, of it uh, is more just of the a comment on that. A sidebar: the Bishop of St. Petersburg in Florida said that the same-sex relationships are a, a sign of holiness. Good boy, oh, Marbury uh, Lynch. Yes, Lynch, yeah, yeah, Lynch. Uh, oh, uh, he, so I mean, the, you know, and as I think Father Chicada <laughs> pointed out. The fact that he would feel free to say that shows that things have radically changed. He would never have said that, even under Ratzinger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that yeah, you can definitely. get away with those things uh, in this context is is amazing and shows uh, just how radical everything has gotten. Yeah. But yeah, mark of holiness. Yeah. Well, the last story that I want to cover here actually is a story from the seventh of January of this year. It's a Rotticelli story. Uh, the the conservative first things magazine, and this is probably you know the nice period at the end of the the show sentence here. Francis is an ideologue and a meddlesome egoist, which I think you covered earlier. That uh, yeah. it, it talks about you, you know Bergoglio being photographed with a no to fracking T-shirt, and if people aren't aware of what fracking is, it's hydraulic fracturing to retrieve natural gas from the earth. He says it was a portentous image. Press toes hop to their keyboards to correct the evidence of our lying eyes. Francis was neither for or against fracking, you see. Nothing of the sort. 
he was simply using a photo op to assert blameless solidarity with the victims of ecological injustice. If that restyling were true, then the more fool Francis. But Francis is not a fool. He is an ideologue and a meddlesome egoist. And what a uh, what a condemnation! Because if if you know a little bit about the conservative slash uh, Catholic uh, political religious scene in the United States, uh, first things is considered uh, sort of to the right, moderate to the right, and so on. But uh, for them to come out and say that uh, Bergoglio is an ideologue and a meddlesome uh, egoist. Uh, the 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 uh, comment that Rorate Chaley put up was that well uh, you know if you lose uh, 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 first things uh, you know you really lose a large part of your uh, uh, mainstream in uh, in America and this is uh, I think that's a perceptive comment that that his um, uh, that people are trying to uh, are starting to realize in some quarters that he is in fact an, an an ideologue and an egoist, and they just have to go to the next step and realize that he is a modernist and a heretic, and therefore no true pope. Are we going to talk about the receiving of a transgender in the Vatican? Oh, now that happened after oh, we put the show plan together. Or is that like the uh, openers for next time? We're a little over now, so why don't we save yeah. it for the next show? Yes, we'll be sure to leave with that story next time around. So, yeah. well, that brings us to the end of the show today. Uh, your Excellency, Father, thank you for your time. Uh, before we go, uh, Your Excellency, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip the conversation about the seminary because you always seem a little uh, a little. <laughs> <laughs> a little flat. Um, Talk about a flat yeah. line. Uh, yeah. Nothing happens. As a matter of fact, Bishop Dolan is here on re- giving the retreat. They're not even talking. I don't even know what's going on here. So I have nothing to report. <laughs> uh, well, at least you don't have the terrorism of gossip. That that's true. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So, you know. Well, yeah, you certainly don't have pre-reciting parrot Christians walking around your seminary right now. So that's good. <laughs> you know. That's, that's <laughs> Well, Father, what's uh, what's happening at SGG Resources right now? Well, what's happening at SGG Resources is we just put up a um, page that uh, is an appeal for funds for a new organ. Not a new organ, but a new used organ. Ours is, the technology in it is 35 years old, and we had an opportunity to uh, get a much newer digital organ that has uh, uh, better technology, that sounds more like a real pipe organ, that has um, uh, more stop sounds and three keyboards, which is uh, much more practical for our client for our music program here. And Does it have any technology to improve the player of the organ? Uh, unfortunately not, but it, it does have, it, and this is very tempting, it has a uh, drive uh, on it that's hidden very discreetly near the keyboard where you can put a CD in. So uh, theoretically, you know, I could take some, some snazzy Bach Toccata and just put the, the CD in and then sort of uh, uh, sync it with my fingers. But in any event, it's... Um, uh, actually, it's relatively cheap. It's uh, for an organ, especially this size. It'll cost us uh, five, six, or seven thousand dollars to get it installed. So we're making a, a kind of a one-time fund appeal for that. So we would appreciate any uh, contributions, large and small, but uh, especially large. Uh, organs of that type go for eighty thousand. Yeah, easy. The last time I placed new. one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so, a good uh, deal. That's a real good price. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, Your Excellency and Father, thank you for your time today, and we look forward to uh, speaking with you next month as the uh, the stories continue on with Francis. So thank you, and yeah. have a wonderful day. Well, thank you very much. much. Well, if you have any questions for His Excellency or Father or any feedback on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at FrancisWatch at TrueRestoration.org. And we will be sure to pass along your questions or comments to His Excellency and Father, and we'd also like to take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider sending a note of thanks to our clergy who make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important thing you can give to us and to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the Restoration, I am Justin Soder, and may God bless you.